Hi, listeners. Welcome back to episode two of the season Evolve. In today's episode, we will be diving into the life journey of a spiritual teacher and seeker, Jovina Chan. A little bit about Jovina. Jovina is currently a faculty member at the renowned spiritual retreat center called the Esalen Institute, based in Big Sur, California. She teaches transformative yoga and dance workshops, and has facilitated many trainings around the world, including the Omega Institute, 1440 Multiversity, and many more. Previously, she served as assistant dean and yoga teacher trainer at the Kripalu School of Yoga. I wanted to interview Jovina because she is one of the few Asian American female faculty members at Esalen, and I wanted to unpack why there are so few Asian American female representation in the spiritual community. In this episode, Jovina shared with us her life journey through the many seasons of her personal evolution, from immigrating to America to study global marketing in Louisiana. Then moving to New York City to pursue her passion for theater, arts, and dance, and eventually her life took another turn when her life circumstances led her to pursue her spiritual path, and she ended up devoting eight years to study yoga at the Kripalu Yoga Center. Now Jovina is once again redefining her own life journey and charting the path for the collective evolution by bringing more diversity, equity, and inclusion through her own unique gifts, personal experiences, and Asian representation in the healing space. So, without further ado, let's welcome Jovina, and I hope you enjoy her story. everyone, welcome to the Permission to Become podcast. This is a podcast about Asian American women exploring their boundaries and permissions around self-discovery and personal empowerment. In this podcast, we will dive into the untold tales of Asian American women breaking out of who they should be and becoming who they truly are. My name is Joyce Bao, and I'm your host on this podcast. Hi, Joanna. Welcome to the Permission to Become podcast. Hi, it's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, so I always start with just a love for you to introduce yourself in your own way of introduction and tell us a little bit about who you are and also what's something that you're really excited about right now. Okay, I think you did a fabulous job. I always listen to those um, introductions like, whoa, is she talking about me? That I sound really awesome. <laughs> um, but yes, I am an author. I have been in education for a really long time. I've worn a lot of different hats in education. I started off as a high school English teacher. I've been a dean of students. I've been a school designer. I've worked in an alternative to prison program. I've worked at an ed tech company and designed professional development. And most recently, I was the vice principal at a high school in the Bay Area in serving like a very underserved population, which is where I've always worked actually in this city. So uh, something I'm really excited about right now is I quit my job just a few months ago so that I could focus on writing and um, full time and trying to support my family as an author and as a creative. And it's really awesome because um, I feel like it's opened up just like this whole, It's I feel, there's like many things 
about life at, in this current phase that are really exciting for me. This is just one of them. And I love that I get to see my kids a lot more often, um, explore like what it means to be a creative and not just like to do creative things as a side hustle, um, to have a lot more freedom in my schedule. And, and so it just, it feels exciting and a little bit scary, but, uh, and, but mostly exciting right now. Yeah. I mean, um, that must have been a huge transition and of letting go of one identity of how people see you and how you see yourself and kind of just leaping into another identity of being a creative and having all this free time. I'm curious kind of what was going through your inner world as you're deciding to take the leap and to do writing full time. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things. So um, I, it's interesting because I don't know that it's an identity shift as much as it is a shift of like my time, like my work and the things that I choose to do with like myself professionally are always under an umbrella of like equity and social justice. That's really what drives. That's why I became an educator. That's why I choose to work in underserved communities and under, you know, structurally, intentionally marginalized communities, what I really think I should call them. That's why I became an educator. I do really love teaching. That's also why I became an author. Um, it kind of fits under that same umbrella. I think that as a parent, I'm very, you know, similarly like one to teach and instill certain values in my children. Um, so for me, like what was happening, I, um, like I was writing at the same full time. Well, I was writing the same time as I was doing all these other things as an educator. Um, the world of education was, became really, really hard. Like I started my job as the vice principal. Um, and then after one semester, it was a new school, it was a new role for me. Um, the pandemic started, so it shifted the world entirely. Um, and education especially, it made it incredibly difficult. I mean, I could talk to you for three hours and it wouldn't be enough time on why that was difficult. But it was really hard for so many years. And at the exact same time, almost overlapping my time as a vice principal, I was going through a divorce. Um, and that divorce went on for a really long time. It just finalized like a few months ago. And, um, so I was, you know, I had less time with my kids. I was working a ton. And at the same time, my first book was published in 2021. So a year into the pandemic and it was received in a way that I could not, it was just beyond my wildest dreams. Like it took, it took the book almost two years to even sell to a publisher. It was just getting rejected. So I, I just had no idea that this reception was coming. I was in my head. I was just like, I just hope that like somebody who needs this book will find it, will know that it exists. And so that the release of that book really shifted so many things like writing started to take up so much more time. I had more opportunities. I had uh, three other books since have been released, like several, many, many more on the way. And so it started to take up, like, I just, I would work full time and then all night and early in the morning and then all weekend when I didn't have my kid was doing writing stuff. And it was just all of it, all of it combined was starting to feel super unsustainable. Um, and it felt like if I was going to try to take this leap into pursuing this thing that I didn't know that I loved. I mean, this is something that I didn't start doing until my son was born it's not like I've been dreaming about this since I was a child, but like, this is a new dream that came as an adult. And so it felt like the right time to try, like the, 
still work at the school one day a week, actually, because I love the community and I love the school and I just get to be their like librarian one day a week. So I get to feed that part of my soul and like get to see and like learn from all these beautiful people there. But like, I get to now really focus on my writing. I have so many stories I want to write. And I, and most importantly, honestly, is I get to have so much more time with my kids and like be the mom that I really want to be for them. I love just that kind of unfolding. It's like one chapter ended, but so much more opened up in your life. And it really resonates actually with the title of the season, which is to evolve. And we're in this constant journey of evolution. And you're just hearing your stories, just you're just allowing yourself to fully surrender to the process of evolution and look at all the blessings that have come into your life and the abundance. I, I just feel so much joy hearing your story. And I definitely, I definitely want to unpack that more. Um, and I love to kind of just kind of go back from the beginning, because I, one of the things that I think really gravitated me towards your work is your passion in the anti-racism in diversity, equity, inclusion. Like I could feel it when I, when I just go through something as simple as a children's book, I could feel your passion for the space. And I love to kind of hear a little bit about your own upbringing as an Asian American woman, as a doctor of two immigrant parents from China and Taiwan. Like, what was it like for you growing up? Like, what was your relationship with your racial identity? Like what fueled all of this passion? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. I actually think that, so to answer the most, the the last question first, I feel like my racial awakening really came in high school. So I was um, chosen at my senior year, one of like several quote unquote student leaders on campus who were um, given the opportunity to go to this camp called Camp Anytown. I think it's called something different now, but it essentially was this like super intense. It was a very diverse group of students from all different social groups, different races and, um, you know, backgrounds. And we were all went to this camp in the woods where we literally just did like intense racial awareness, like training. Like, I, I mean, one, I, one of the first things I will never forget we did, it was the very first night we got there and we were all sitting in this big auditorium and basically like each racial group of people was called up. So like black students first and then everyone else, um, they were like very clear. It doesn't mean you believe it, but what are some things that come to mind immediately? And we just had to call it out and they would write it down. And then like in real time, you watch the students react and you just knew like your turn was coming Asian students next white students like and it was like and everyone is like sobbing and I and like I'm sure I just just like huge awake you know and we was it was like that all weekend long where like you would like and then you would talk and then you would like bond and then you would go and like play in the field and play football and then you would come back and do like stuff about disabilities or stuff about whatever and I remember I left that's really when I started to become aware of race and racism and systemic oppression and um that I think has, that's really fueled me and like my work. You know, I was born in Minnesota. I actually feel really fortunate because I was always surrounded that there is not a huge Asian community in Minnesota, but the one that exists there feels very tight, at least in my experience. Like I grew up with cousins, a lot of cousins close by. Um, and so I didn't grow up feeling so conscious that I was surrounded by whiteness because I was surrounded by my family all the time. Um, and so I do think that that's like such an, I, I didn't, I don't have that, that story of like wishing I was white or wishing that I 
because I was always with my family until I moved. Um, and so I just don't think I was as aware racially of, you know, there were for sure things like that so many of us experience, like people pulling up their eyes, not until I moved to California, actually, and maybe probably Baltimore. In Baltimore, I was definitely treated like, oh, like she's so smart. Like we put her in a different math class. She just gets like a textbook and learns all by herself in the library, which means I basically didn't learn math all of fifth grade because I didn't know what's going on. And then like, and then I went to California and, you know, experiences like people pulling up their eyes and ching chong, wing wong. But I think that there was certainly a level of um, privilege, but also of just like an awareness and not an inability to name those things. And then I, I do really feel like my evolution and my understanding of my identity has come so much more like in college. There's just many things you don't know to question because like, like the, the, your complete invisibility in books and stories and movies and history and in class, like you just don't even know that that's a, a possibility. Like I didn't know. And so when I was in college and I took my very first class with my, uh, that was like about Asian American, like literature and film or something. It was, I remember it being so like, gosh, I don't know any of this history. I don't know anything. I literally know nothing reading things like the rape of like Nanking and like slowly learning, like slowly having conversations. And I think so much of that honestly has happened. My evolution and my understanding of myself as an Asian person came as I like learned our, the language better. I lived in Taiwan. I like getting a better understanding of the, of my own culture. And um, it's certainly an ongoing process. I think that becoming an author has really, in some really beautiful ways, um, catalyzed that learning. The reception of Isaac Kiss in the Corners was like something that that was truly like, oh my gosh, I did not realize I'm not the only person who felt like this growing up. You know, I didn't realize that this would hit and resonate so deeply with so many people. And that I think made me realize like there is a real responsibility here to tell our stories, to know our history. And, and we have just been thirsting for things we didn't know we needed until we got it. And then it was like, whoa, I've been needing this. I didn't even know I needed it. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I'm still kind of struck by like just the opportunity you had in high school to dive into such deep work because, yeah, this racial awakening, you know, I, I had this like a year ago <laughs> and much of it is, I think it's because in high school and even in college, like there's so much, so little exposure to explore this topic of our racial identity. So I'm kind of just curious, like, how did how did that inspire you to or like what did it inspired you to want to become or or, or do for this world because I know you study psychology in college like did it inspire you to then want to go into the education space and kind of change students understanding of their their racial identity I think there's two parts of this so one is I wanted to like name that the, that understanding was very much in this like black white binary of race that I think very often dominates our very our racial conversations and so when we pinpoint to your last question like my evolution of my identity as an Asian person that as I think in the last five, 10 years is understanding actually this binary that I've been trying to fit in is not my, is not a binary. Like there is so much more complexity in racial dialogue that we need to expand and to, 
And that's part of my own personal like learning and journey and part of what I hope that I'm doing with my stories. And like, so that's one part of that. Um, and, and so that's very, it feels like an, a continual learning process because even one, like the lack of the dialogue and then two, the like limited nature of the dialogue, you know, there's just constant ways that all of us need to grow in terms of how it, I think I've always been very driven to want to do things to like change the world. You know, when I was little, I loved watching movies like Gandhi and like, and I recognize that these movies are movies and they're Hollywood eyes and there's so many more nuances we don't catch in the stories, but like, I love movies like that. That's what's always spoken to me. And it was more a question of like, what am I going to focus on? So I think racial, that camp I went to was like, okay, this is something I'm really passionate about. Um, I didn't know I wanted to go into education right away. I thought for a long time, like so many of us that I was going to go into medicine, I wanted to study abroad. And then um, I didn't end up going to medicine. Then I thought for a while, I'm going to go into law and I'll do international like human rights law. And I had a conversation with a dear friend who was a professor mentor. And he was basically like, Joanna, like law school is for people who don't know what they want to do with their life. (laughs) And it was like on this way, on the way back, like we're, I'm pretty religious. So I had this like epiphany, you know, of like, I really, I've always worked in schools actually, when I really looked back and I've always been drawn to work in education, to teaching, to working with students. And so it was like this aha moment of like, you go should work in teaching. And I went home that night and I sobbed in the corner of my room because one it like felt good to have clarity and two because I was like oh my gosh I'm going to be poor forever like I'm going to struggle always <laughs> and um but you know obviously that felt like the thing that I needed to pursue like education is my heart but also systemically I think it is it is like the intersection of every other oppressive system, patriarchal system, racist system, and it intersects in schools and schools are a resource and so inequitable. Yeah. Well, I was just kind of leaning in when you were talking about your journey of, you know, wanting to first become a doctor and a lawyer and then realizing that, and, and I think you're one of the, 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 lucky ones to actually have that clarity because I think a lot of people navigate through life not knowing and I certainly have gone through that but and I noticed also I'm not sure if your sweater says your model minority model minority not your model minority and like okay this is all clicking right because I think literally that moment that you realize your purpose is to be at least at that time to be an educator, you shatter that model minority stereotype. Right. So like, did you actually have conversations with your family or like, how did you break that? Yeah. Like shatter that. Um, So I went to an Ivy league school. I think my parents had, or my mom, I'm, I like, I don't really talk to my dad, but my, um, you know, I think that they had high hopes (laughs) And then I like when I I studied abroad in Ghana. The story just gets like the plot thickens. I studied abroad in Ghana, which is West Africa, for all of my junior year, and that was um and I loved it. And I studied traditional dance when I was there. Not I was psych major, but I ended up like loving dance so much. So when I came back, I like joined several dance groups in college. And I had this like idea that I was going to be a dancer. You know, I was going to be, I like it just clearly I have always leaned towards creative things. And that was not, 
And of course my mom was like dying, like you're not going to be a professional dancer. Like what? And so I think when I landed in education, it was like, who, you know, like, like, especially one who clearly has not trained her whole life. Like you might be really passionate and you might be like decent at it, but like, you know, that's not, that's not it. But, um, so I think there was that, but then there's for sure, like, there's an element of like, well, if you're going to be a teacher, you should work in this kind of school and not that kind of school. And there's so many layers of like racism and like underlying assumptions and just an ignorance of systems uh, that you can unpack forever and that kind of thing. But like, but there's also a function of like, you make way more money. It's all relative. You don't make any money in education, but like, you make more money if you work in a rich district than if you do in one that's not. And that's not what I was interested in, you know? So I think that's a journey in my, I think there's an element that is clearly not spoken out loud of like, like my mom used to introduce, like talk about me to her friends, like, oh, she's our family's like mother Teresa, you know? And there's something like, I think she trying to meant it in a nice way. Like Joanna's the bleeding heart who wants to like, do things with people and then but there's also an element of like Joanna does not have a brain for money and like that's not her focus <laughs> so I think that's been a process for my family I think that becoming an author is something it's like the first time that I felt like they were really proud of something I did and like the cynical part of me can be like oh that's because there's been some like worldly measures of success that they can speak to but I actually really think that it's um deeper than that. Like, I think that my relationship with my family has gotten closer as I've started to ask more questions about like Chinese history and about their experiences, like things I never thought to ask before. Like I have them look, read like my stories and I have my stepdad look and give me feedback. And is this culturally correct? And tell me the history. And then I'll put that stuff in the books. And, um, I think that's been one way of me sharing like my own passion in a way that I was not able to through education in a way that they can appreciate and see like how I am for our community and I think that that's that's been like a shift in terms of me feeling like they're happy with what I'm doing (laughs) yeah I mean it's so beautiful because it just sounds like that is the glue that brought the family together and you're able to use words and stories and unpacking their story and bringing that story to your stories to really kind of connect the community. Um, I am curious, um, you know, especially kind of on, on your on the educator part of your journey and evolution. Um, because when, when I well, I immigrated to the U.S. when I was eleven, and my primary school education or even secondary education, like I have not had a lot of Asian American teachers. And I think as a result, um, it was very difficult um, for them to empathize with the experiences of immigrant children or whatnot. I'm curious, like, how did you navigate or how was the journey for you navigating through this, the space of becoming an educator and figuring out your career path in a, I I would assume, and I'm assuming, um, predominantly white in, 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 in the education space and and then you're here you know doing this this dismantling like racism and um bringing like diverse diverse and equity like how was that journey for you kind of navigating through like finding your place in in that industry while you know doing your work yeah I think that's that's such an interesting question I 
I think that like, as at the, I think that my understanding of race really was so much on a binary that I was not thinking of myself as a, as an Asian person in my own needs in my own community. It was more just about like black, white, brown, white, like systems. And, um, and, you know, Asian people fit within that also, but like, it wasn't as clear. So just like, it felt clear to me, I want to work in um, like title one schools, there's communities close to me, like, and there weren't a ton of Asian educators. I actually, my very first Asian educator was though the leader of my grad school program at Berkeley. And that was like life-changing for me. Like I'd never had, with the exception of that one teacher who taught specifically like Asian history, I never had like an Asian leader in education and she was phenomenal. And, um, so that was like the first time I was like, oh, like, wow, representation really matters. You don't know what you're missing again until you have it. I And then my most recent school actually had the most Asian educators I've ever worked with. There's like a bunch of really passionate, really amazing Asian Pacific Islander educators. And that was also like a really beautiful experience where I was like, whoa, people were talking about like AAPI, NHPI heritage month. And like, they're asking me to share my story. Like, that's never happened. Someone said something about like Lunar New Year when I was at work and that's never happened. And again, whoa, I didn't realize how powerful that would feel for me as an educator. I've never had it. Um, certainly I had to navigate like, you know, the majority of my students were Latinx and Black and um, Pacific Islander and um, certainly have to navigate a lot of like ignorance and anti-Asian racism but like from a position of power, like where I'm the teacher and there are students. So that's a different thing. Like it's wanting to do that in a way that it still honors all of our identities and all of our stories and, and the space within the, in this like system, this very racialized system. I think that um, though, I think the most maybe telling point of growth is like since becoming an author and becoming so much more connected to my identity, as an Asian American person, I really questioned if I go back into schools, um, would I choose to work someplace that has more Asian students because the impact that can make as an Asian educator, um, there is a lot of work to do in our communities. And I think that I might be drawn, I don't know, but that's certainly a question that I have is, um, like where I would want to do, because I think that there aren't enough people amplifying our stories, working in our, there are, there are people doing that, but like, where do I want to focus my energy if I go back? Exactly. And I think you were, you were telling me earlier that the first time you read like about books or stories about Asian American community was when you were in college. And, you know, I, I think, and this was kind of also what I realized, like I didn't learn anything about the history of different Asian American communities growing up, right? We learn about, of course, like the civil rights movement and like, you know, it's it's very black and white kind of the American history. And we didn't really learn about Japanese internment camp and, and all of this, right? And it's like a big part of American culture or identity that was missing. And I'm I'm curious, like in your work, like how... And, and, you know, it's been so many years since I've been in, in, in high school and as a teenager, but like, how, how do you actually bring these conversations to kids who are just in the stage of like 
forming their identity or even figuring out who they are. There are so, there's nothing you can't talk to like a teenager or even a four-year-old about. They are so brilliant. And I think about this all the time, like the teenagers today, they are so much more aware. They're so much more critically conscious. They are so much more like with it, with what's happening in the world than I certainly was in high school. Like they know about politics. They could tell you about system and credit. They tell you about patriarchy. They can tell you about like all of the things. And it's like such a normal part of their conversation for so many. Um, and, and, and regardless of whether it's something they're comfortable or something they grew up or their, their awareness level, I think that the bottom line is that young people are brilliant. They see and they know and they understand what's happening in the world. They don't always have the language for it. And they they don't always have the tools yet with which to discuss in a way or to communicate their thoughts and feelings and experiences in a way that maybe matches accurately what those things are. But they certainly know and they're observant. And so I feel like it's just as an educator or as a parent, it's really about finding ways to make spaces where having those conversations are safe and where you can like really wrestle and grow and um, honor their experiences and their voices and the things that they bring to the table, because really it's about stepping back and like letting them lead themselves more than it is about like, you know, being a Pied Piper trying to like chart for them. Yeah. I'm curious if you had any like personal experiences, whether it's with your kids or with your students where, you know, something had come up where they couldn't put words to what they were experiencing or feeling. And you had to kind of step in to help them navigate. Um, yeah. These, these uncharted territories, maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question. It's been a long time since I've been in the classroom, but I mean, I can, I mean, as the vice principal, I, last year was a really hard year. There were a lot, um, there was a lot of violence on my campus, which is very unusual. I think there's a lot of pandemic things that were happening. And, um, and so I just think like that, that's an example of like helping, and it's not necessarily racial, but that it's certainly there are aspects of that, but working with students, like using a restorative process and restorative practices to like sit people who just got in a fight down and, to really talk through like what happened and what was the root and how did they feel and who was impacted and making agreements to like for how we can go back to class and school in a safe way and bring families together and seeing families who come into meetings like angry and worried scared and then like exchanging phone numbers when you leave saying like will you call me like let me know I'll call you like hey I'm so glad I had this meeting and then Sometimes people become friends again after sometimes they don't, but then they don't fight again. Sometimes they, you know, you it's not, it's not like a quick fix, but there's certainly like a real beauty around modeling and navigating and facilitating conversations like that. Mm -hmm. It's actually really interesting. And this could be a total like sidetrack, just as you were doing this, describing these conflicts. I'm like, actually, I see this at work all the time, right? It's just, it's just in a very, it's a different degree of conflicts, but it's a very similar way of like, how do people bring our feelings forward? And how do we address these conflicts? And how do we walk out like being friends? Again? <laughs> yes, totally. And here's the thing is, as hard as we all think, like we all think it is to have these conversations with teenagers or with five-year-olds it is exponentially harder to do it with adults like adults will be like nope I'm not coming to the table 
And like sometimes students will say, I'm not coming. And maybe they don't have as much power in the situation because like you're about to be suspended, you know, like you just got in a fight, like let's come to the table. But like, or your parents are like, nope, we don't want this happen again. Like there's a more function, forcing functions. And so it's not always like we get to a point where people are willing to come to the table before it's work. It works, but like adults need all of these same skills and need sometimes all the same modeling and they are less amenable sometimes to it. And I'm just, I'm just thinking like, it all comes back to at the end of the day, we have to continuously do the work on ourselves yes. or yes. be a role model um, yeah. for the next generation. <laughs> I love teenagers because teenagers for all their snark and all their attitude, they are the most open-hearted, like hopeful, inspiring, like, you know, they'll give you attitude, but like they'll also come and just like blow your mind away. They're, they're just, I just love them. There's so much like potential and openness, even, you know, you get past sometimes what seems like a rough exterior. Yeah. Well, now I, I want to switch gears a little bit. I, I, mean, I love this education space and I'm like, we can literally spend hours talking about it. I do want to kind of start to understand a little bit about your, your journey to becoming an author and a writer, because I can see your eyes light up and your whole person light up as you talk about it. And it's a, re- a real passion. Like, when did you discover that you know, you want to start writing and how did you, how did you pick like children's book just out of all, all things? Okay. So I actually writing, like I said earlier, is not something I wanted to do always. I actually really struggled with writing in high school. It was hard for me. I think I was probably okay at it, but it was really hard. Like I always tell, I do school visits and I'll tell students like, Okay, so one time when I was a senior in high school, I sat in front of a laptop for eight hours on an assignment. How much do you think I wrote? And they'll be like, a paragraph, like five pages. And I'm like, one sentence. Ah! And it's not an exaggeration. Like it was really hard for me to form the get my word, like have my words say the things I wanted them to say. So you fast forward, I had uh, my first child. Uh, he's now eight. And so you bring all that like impassion about inclusion and representation and equity. And I, so, okay. Like the real story is I, he was born in August and it, he was like four months old and it was Christmas time. And I was looking, I had it in my head that I wanted to make a picture book advent for him, even though he couldn't open the book. I mean, this is so, this is like new mom. I wasn't having enough sleep. I don't know what I was thinking, but it got into my head that I wanted to do this. And so I was looking for diverse, like inclusive books about the holidays, about Christmas. And there were none. I mean, not none. There were so few. And I was looking for 25, you know? And this was like eight years ago or pretty yeah, wow. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense because clearly he wasn't opening the books, but that's what happened. And I was like Googling and I just had this like realization like about how much children's books lacked inclusion and diversity. I, I, you know, we're taught high school English. I never really explored children's books. And I just was, I, again, it was like another one of those like, oh, moments. I remember I was like laying on my couch typing and I was just thought like, oh, you should try to write them. Like, why don't you write one? And I think at the time it was very much like inspired because it's not something I'd want to do all the time. And also why children's books? Like I thought pictures are short, like they're probably doable. I can learn that. And that's very much, um, 
then, you know, like naive in terms of understanding the art form and understanding how hard it really is to write a good picture book. But that's kind of where it was born was like this desire to add hopefully like a, another voice to a grown canon of, of inclusive books about people from all especially like marginalized identities. Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually curious, like when that seed that of idea was planted in your head that you should write. A it was that night on the couch. And so from the, I feel I'm like the kind of person, like when I have the inspiration like that and it felt so clear, I was like, okay, like we're, we're doing this. So, so like what happened then? Because you've never read a children's book. Completely new. Like, what did you do next? I tried to write my own. I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote a bunch of garbage books. I, um, I, I, so I just started, I didn't know how to format it on a page. I didn't know anything. I was like Googling online and doing all this research. And I was really, I happened to, my cousin happened to know someone who had started a very small independent press. And I showed her like a couple of my books and even at the time, like some sketches. Cause I didn't know, like, maybe I should try illustrating. And she basically like looked at him and was like, you should work on your craft. And by the way, there's a conference you can sign up for. I'm speaking at it. And so it's SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And um, I, so it just happened to be like a few weeks away and there was still an open spot. So I signed up and I went to a conference and I just, well, I was like all in. I went to the conferences. I like met people. I asked if they wanted to be in a critique group together. I signed up for other online classes and um. And then it's kind of was learning from there, you know, and writing. And, and then that's the beginning of the journey. Yeah. Like it just sounds like the snowball kind of tumbled and you just follow the kind of your, your impulse to allow that to kind of manifest into reality. <laughs> when like, you say it like that, it sounds really cool. Like, yes, that's what I did. <laughs> At the time it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Let me Google like a million things, you know? I mean, I'm curious, like what kept you going? Because it must not have been easy. Plus you had a full-time job, you had kids and you didn't know what you were doing at the time. So I wrote a lot of books. Um, they were not good. I just, I think that for me, that's a personality thing too. Like I make a decision about the school or the thing. And for me, because I think it, because that thing came rooted in a desire for equity and a way for increasing representation. And then that feels like there's real purpose. It's not just like, I want to publish a book, you know, there's like a real purpose in terms of how this is going to shift narratives in the world. And I think like there's a spiritual component, like I'm pretty religious. Um, and so there was a component of this really felt inspired. I, I think that that was it. Like I, I just didn't know. So you just kind of like stumbling through and learning and I don't have like a, a fear of failing or doing something badly because design thinking is a whole other thing we could talk about but like I've had a lot of experience with that and so I think that's really been life-changing for me as a human but it's certainly in my writing and so I just like I just think it felt really important like it felt like this is the thing that's needed and and let me learn how to do it I wrote several drafts you know you learn there's like a whole process of how you query agents do you want to do an agent do you want to submit immediately to a publisher and I knew like I wanted an agent because again as aforementioned like I don't have a brain for money or any of that stuff so I didn't want to deal with that and and you have more opportunities with an agent to publish at a big house and I well I want my stories to be published widely because I want them 
to, to change narratives. I don't, it's not a pet project of like, I want to publish a book and give it to my friends and family. So you were serious. Like you were really, it wasn't just like, I just want to get this book out there. and Like if I'm going to do this, the purpose of doing this is to add more stories, probably about Asian kids to, to be available to kids everywhere. And I'm not going to be able to do that by self-publishing. I don't how to market or publicize or any of that. Like if I want to do this, then I want to do it for real. Like I'm going to be all in and that years, which it did, you know, it took years. Um, so I signed with my agent. I mean, for my process, it was fast. It, the publishing process is so long. So even a couple years is pretty fast, but I signed with an agent. But then after I signed with my agent, who is amazing, it was like almost, almost two years, over a year and a half before I sold my first book. And there were like five books on submission at the time, my, five of my stories, they were just getting rejected or I just never heard back. Um, so Isaac Kiss in the Chords is not the first book I wrote. It just was. Oh, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Cause it, cause I don't think most people like people look at your success, right? It's like you, you just first time author and all of a sudden your books are everywhere. You want all these awards, but like I don't think I knew that you had actually many stories and books. You've written many, in fact, right? Before the first book that really got the public attention. And no, I had, they weren't published. I just, they were written, but nobody wanted to publish them. They were just being rejected. Same with Isaac Kiss. It just rejected so many times. It just was like, yeah, people, it felt like, oh, people don't care. Maybe it's, maybe I'm not a good reader. Maybe like people don't care about Asian stories. Like who knows why it's hard, but that period of time certainly was hard. Like I was checking my email every day. Like this is never going to happen. You know, nobody's ever going to want to publish one of my stories. I just am someone who like with every rejection, I like write another story. You know, I don't, I'm, you turn the rejection into redirection. Yeah. Oh, see, I like how you rephrase everything. It makes me sound really smart. <laughs> it's more like stubborn. <laughs> oh yeah, well, you're going to reject my story. I'm going to write another one. <laughs> well, so I'm curious about the story of the eyes, eyes that kiss in the corners, because that's really the fir- your first book that, you know, really like debut, right? And kind of got that public attention. Like you said, it got rejected many times. Um, what was the turning point? Well, I feel like it, that's a lot on my agent because I was totally like, so at what point do we just stop submitting? Cause I hear stories from other authors that are like, oh, my agent said like, we tried all these, you know, let's move on to the next thing. And so I was kind of waiting for my agent to be like, all right, well, this one's not going to go. And she's stubborn like me. Like, she's like, no, we're going to sell it. Again. So I love that about her. Cause I was like, she's going to drop me as a client. She hasn't sold any of my books. And it's been like so long. I was really worried um and so I and behind I didn't know she was like submitting to all these editors and she submitted to my editor Clarissa Wong who is a genius and um and Clarissa wrote this email that was just like I wish I had this but it was this really emotional really beautiful email I wish I had this book when I was young I wish I had this it's so important blah 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 it was like so clear she understood and she like it spoke to her and I think it's like another one of those things like it just needed to be with the right person at the right time who was going to champion it, who understood really deeply what it was about and who loved it. And like, and it's such a beautiful thing because she picked up that story. She, since even before that one was published, she signed on like so many other ones, which is also unusual. So it just was like, okay, it all ended up working out, but the period of waiting for things to work out was, you know, know if it's going to happen. Yeah, and and I I guess my takeaway from your story is that if you have a purpose, 
that is really grounded in wanting something, wanting to change the world for the better. That's what keeps you going. And that's also what almost shielded you from the blunt of so many rejections because it wasn't for your ego. It wasn't for like you wanted fame or recognition or whatnot. It was because you had a genuine passion and purpose of wanting to change the world for the better. And that's what led you to that point of getting accepted and having total alignment. I think so. I think that's true. I think that's um, for sure. Like, because it was not about me, it was about like, there is a deeper purpose in why I became an author. You know, some people, I think they become authors because they love writing and they love story and they've been doing it since they were children. I I love reading. I've always loved it. And this has been a new thing. Like it's like self-discovery when you're for, you know, in your forties, like, um, well, it started in my thirties, but like this process of like, I think one learning for me is like as a parent and as educator, so often we ask our kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your dreams? Pursue your dreams. And I'm in this place now where I'm like, these dreams change. Like I didn't know this was a dream of mine until I was in my thirties and now it's like my dream and now it's my life. And so it's like this beautiful thing where you feel like actually there isn't as much pressure as a, a young person. I wish that we could teach that to our young kids. Like your life is a journey. You don't need to have it all figured out right now because like to what you're saying, you're going to evolve. Your dreams are going to change. And that's beautiful. It's like part of the process of life. I love that. And I think for you, what I picked out about your story is that you listen to that first like impulse, like whether we call it, it's, you know, message from the divine or God or whatever, right? Like you listen to it and you followed it. And I think a lot of us, are either conditioned to like shut it down or are too afraid to follow the breadcrumbs, right? Because you just kind of took that initial impulse and whether it's becoming an educator or writer, just to kind of keep going at it little by little. And I don't think you probably knew where you were getting to, right? Like when you had that idea, you didn't think you were going to become an (laughs) author or writer and also quit your job and (laughs) where where you're at now. Yeah. I mean, it's been a really beautiful, that's just like, there's so many things. There's so many unexpected things that happen in life. I didn't know I was going to get a divorce, but I also didn't know I was going to become an author. Like, and all of it is part of a journey, you know? And so I think that's something that's exciting about this is knowing that it's such a different mindset as when we're like just out of high school and just out of college where you're like, I need to decide my career for the rest of my life. And now learning like as a middle-aged woman, you know, that actually that's not always the case. Well, I know we're getting close to, to the end, but I, I, I do want to ask you some last questions because you started with publishing children's book and you just recently published your first young adult novel, which is a totally different genre, right? And I envision so much like different intricacies of weaving plots and like creating characters. Like how did you evolve to (laughs) write your first novel? It's the same answer as before is I wanted to tell a story about (laughs) anti-racism, about like anti-Asian racism. I didn't actually think I could ever write a novel. I, in fact, I I think I told my agent that when I first met her, but I um, read a book. I read The Hate You Give. I'm sure many people have read it. 
And in my head, I don't know why, in my head for so long, novels were fantasy. I love reading fantasy. And I was just like, I can never write something like that and make up a whole new world and like magic and rules and characters and plot weaving. And I just felt like, no, but I read The Hate Give and I was like, whoa, novels can be about contemporary things that speak to what's happening now. And I want to, that I think I could do. And, and I want to tell a story. I wanted to write about anti-Asian racism. I wanted to write about black and Asian solidarity. Um, and so, and I work with high school kids. So I uh, truthfully, like the transition to writing in that voice um, didn't feel super unnatural because that's actually in real life, kind of where I spend all my time. But um, the learning how to write a story, you know, I was, I just read tons and tons of novels and I, um, I just, I just do it. And then, and then I like do a lot of revising on the back end with a lot of help from agent and readers and my editor. Wow. So you really like just learn as you, 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 you went, like you do literally just kind of learn on the ground and like how to write. Yeah, I would like, before I started, I think I told myself, I'm going to read a hundred YA novels. I don't think I read a hundred, but I didn't start writing it until probably a year after I had like the idea for it and was like working but I was like trying to learn like reading a lot of contemporary YA that's just I don't learn as well through through write books about writing I learned better by just like seeing how they're and then like absorbing so that's more my process and how long did it take you to like from beginning to end from the idea oh years years I think that I the idea came in 2017 I think I maybe started drafting in 2000. I think maybe I finished the first draft. It took me a year to do it. And then another year of revising it like multiple times before it went on sub. And then another like couple years of revising once it was acquired. Oh, wow. So it is really years in the works. And it just happened that it came at the perfect time when the collective really needed to hear those stories and just everything just is like perfect alignment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of, it's like an, it's actually wrote it in my author's note because, you know, at the time when I wrote it, nobody was talking about Asian hate and violence against Asian people. And I just was like, I don't know if anyone's going to read it. And then, and then it's this thing where it's like, Oh, it's so timely. And I'm like, but I thought of it, this is, this has been a reality for us for generations just because, like the vi- there was like huge acts of violence now you feel like it's timely but the reality is that's been happening always so um like it's great that there is slowly a greater collective consciousness about it but even that i don't think is like very deep you know so i hope that more and more people will like tell stories and talk and i do think that that's happening within many asian communities but again i think it could be more i hope it will become more and i think this leads to my question of because you have decided to now devote your full time to writing, like what is your vision for who you're becoming and how you're changing the world? (laughs) I don't know. I think it's exciting to be just, I think I will always write what's passionate in my heart. I want to tell stories of Asian joy. I wrote a book about Santa and it was inspired by like my daughter. I took her to San Francisco and it happened to be SantaCon that day or whatever it's called. And she saw all the Santas and she was like, I want to write stories like that about Asian joy. I, I just want to explore like the inspiration that comes. I would love to write a story that is inspired 
by Monkey King. I would love to write a story that holds from my own like family history. Um, <clears throat> I would love to write a story about Chinese people in Yosemite who like helped to make Yosemite real. Like I have all these ideas um, and I'm so it's exciting to have time to write them and to like, to I don't know, I'm so early on this journey of like, what does it mean to be a creative? And what does that mean about how I like see myself and what my identity becomes? It's fun to be at the beginning part of like a phase where you consciously know you were like growing and developing. Yeah. No, as you're talking about all these different book ideas, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. I want to read all these books. Hurry and write them. <laughs> exactly. They sound so exciting. And also it's like, I feel heard and seen like a part of me gets to be represented out in the world and the story gets to be shared. So I I'm so grateful that you have taken the leap to do this. And I'm also really grateful for you just being here and sharing your stories. And before we part, I'm curious if there's anything else you feel like you want to share with the audience or any wisdom you want to impart on aspiring creatives or people who want to just aspire to share full more of who they are with the world. Parting thoughts on that are just that like, like we have the ability to break down whatever the barrier or whatever the like opposite, like the container is that we feel like we have to fit. Like that is not, whether it's by society or our families or culture, like, like there is life and like growth and possibility beyond the things that have been subscribed to us. Like we were not made to be invisible. We were not made to be silent. There is there are stories upon stories and worlds upon worlds that we can explore within ourselves, but also that we can create, you know, for each other. If you would love to read more big stories, I would be grateful. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here. I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to to like pursue this dream. And that's because of people like you and because of the readers and the booksellers and the librarians and people who are reading my books. And so like really it's like truly from the bottom of my heart like thank you for giving me the opportunity well thank you so much for wisdom so if folks want to find more learn more about you um what's the best way to get in touch with you where can they find your work yeah i so my website everything is joanna ho writes w-r-i-t-e-s so my website is joanna ho writes.com can more updates on like i haven't book. i have three books coming out next year um I'm most active on Instagram. So again, Joanna Ho writes, I'm like very rarely on Twitter, but that's like blowing up anyway. So, and I have a baby TikTok account that I'm like dabbling in, but it's all under Joanna Ho writes. Oh, also Facebook. Well, that's easy to remember. So I'll add everything in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for being here on this podcast and for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Permission to Become podcast. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So feel free to email me at permissiontobecome at gmail.com. <laughs>